Hello and welcome to Newman's Thoughts, a multimedia reading project from the Newman Institute for Catholic Thought and Culture to promote the thoughts and ideas of our patron saint, John Henry Newman. Today is day six, and we conclude the preface to St. John Henry Newman's The Idea of a University. I'm reading from the Cluny Media edition of The Idea of a University. You can follow along with this or any other edition, or even online, via our daily email. St. John Henry Newman, paragraphs 17 through 19, to the preface of The Idea of a University, that is, its conclusion. Such party-colored ingenuities are indeed one of the chief evils of the day, and men of real talent are not slow to minister to them. An intellectual man, as the world now conceives of him, is one who is full of views on all subjects of philosophy on all matters of the day. It is almost thought a disgrace not to have a view at a moment's notice on any question from the personal advent to the cholera or mesmerism. This is owing in great measure to the necessities of periodical literature, now so much in request. Every quarter of a year, every month, every day, there must be a supply for the gratification of the public of new and luminous theories on the subjects of religion, foreign politics, home politics, civil economy, finance, trade, agriculture, emigration, and the colonies, slavery, the gold fields, German philosophy, the French empire, Wellington, Peel, Ireland, must all be practiced on day after day by what are called original thinkers as the great man's guest must produce his own good stories or songs at the evening banquet, as the platform orator exhibits his telling facts at midday, so the journalist lies under the stern obligation of extemporizing his lucid views, leading ideas, and nutshell truths for the breakfast table. The very nature of periodical literature, broken into small holes and demanded punctually to an hour, involves the habit of this extempore philosophy. Almost all the ramblers, says Boswell of Johnson, were written just as they were wanted for the press. He sent a certain portion of the copy of an essay and wrote the remainder while the former part of it was printing. Few men have the gifts of Johnson, who to great vigor and resource of intellect, when it was fairly roused, united a rare common sense and a conscientious regard for veracity, which preserved him from flippancy or extravagance in writing. Few men are Johnsons, yet how many men at this day are assailed by incessant demands on their mental powers, which only a productiveness like his could suitably supply. There is a demand for a reckless originality of thought, and a sparkling plausibility of argument, which he would have despised even if he could have displayed. A demand for crude theory and unsound philosophy, rather than none at all. It is a sort of repetition of the quid novi of the Areopagus, and it must have an answer. Men must be found who can treat where it is necessary, like the Athenian sophists, de omnishibile, grammaticus, retor, geometres, pictor, aliptes, auger, skenebates, medicus, magus, omnia novet. Grammarian, order, geometer, painter, masseur, auger, rope walker, physician, astrologer, he knew everything. I am speaking of such writers with a feeling of real sympathy for men who are under the rod of a cruel slavery. I have never indeed been in such circumstances myself, nor in the temptations which they involve, but most men who have had to do with composition must know the distress which at times it occasions them to have to write, a distress sometimes so keen and so specific that it resembles nothing else than bodily pain. That pain is the token of the wear and tear of the mind, 
and if works done comparatively at leisure involve such mental fatigue and exhaustion, what must be the toil of those whose intellects are to be flaunted daily before the public in full dress, and that dress ever new and varied, and spun like the silkworms out of themselves? Still, whatever true sympathy we may feel for the ministers of this dearly purchased luxury, and whatever sense we may have of the great intellectual power which the literature in question displays, we cannot honestly close our eyes to its direct evil. One other remark suggests itself, which is the last I shall think it necessary to make. The authority, which in former times was lodged in universities, now resides in very great measure in that literary world, as it is called, to which I have been referring. This is not satisfactory, if as no one can deny, its teaching be so offhand, so ambitious, so changeable. It increases the seriousness of the mischief that so very large a portion of us writers are anonymous, for irresponsible power never can be anything but a great evil, and moreover that, even when they are known, they can give no better guarantee for the philosophical truth of their principles than their popularity at the moment, and their happy conformity and ethical character to the age which admires them. Protestants, however, may do as they will. It is a matter for their own consideration. But at least it concerns us that our own literary tribunals and oracles of moral duty should bear a graver character. At least it is a matter of deep solicitude to Catholic prelates that their people should be taught a wisdom, safe from the excesses and vagaries of individuals, embodied in institutions which have stood the trial and received the sanction of ages, and administered by men who have no need to be anonymous, as being supported by their constancy with their predecessors and with each other. John Henry Newman, November 21st, 1852. Thanks for listening to Newman's Thoughts. To discover more about today's readings or to download this season's reading guide, visit www.newmansthoughts.com. This has been a production of the Newman Institute for Catholic Thought and Culture, an apostle of the Diocese of Lincoln in partnership with St. Gregory the Great Seminary and the UNL Newman Center, St. Thomas Aquinas Church.